Hello, I'm Pastor Gillespie, <clears throat> excuse me, from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here this day, Saturday, January 27th, 2024, for the Congregation at Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Come to you each morning at about 9 o'clock, except for uh, Sundays, when we have divine service at 9.30, Bible class at 8.15, um, and then other events as they come after um, divine service. So, um, let's see, what else? That's good to have you uh, with us here live. Those of you watching on the video, or if you're um, listening either later in the day or or even tomorrow, um, well, or whenever, good to have you. It's good to have Vicki back. She's checking in on the chat. She's apparently been down with the flu. All right. Uh, as it happens this time of year, it seems, uh, especially, well, we had a, we had a couple year uh, lapse where the flu wasn't quite as bad. Uh, this year, it seems to be more serious again. Uh, so it goes. Cyclical. Um... I could say something to that, but we'll leave it for now. Maybe we'll come back to it later. Put the devotion up on the screen. There you go. And let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we pray our psalm for the week, Psalm 77, which is a fitting beginning to the Gesmatide, which we'll, uh, we should probably talk about that, and also uh, uh, leading into, well, out of Transfiguration and into Lent. All right, Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids opened. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Excuse me. I will remember the deeds of old. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The, sky, the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Say our verse together. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And our catechism, sacrament of holy baptism. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. 
that is, a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Right? We've been hearing readings all week showing that it is the word of God that is in and with the water that does the great things, whether it's delivering God's people safely through the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh and all his hosts, the, the mortal enemies of, of God and his people, um, whether it's uh, the flood, uh, destroying all wickedness and evil in the world, uh, yet protecting um, Noah and his family, eight souls and all, believing Noah, right, trusting in God's word, not because he was without sin, but because uh, the word that was spoken to him he believed, right, by the Spirit. Or uh, um, Naaman's leprosy being cleansed or going across the Jordan River. Regardless, whichever story we've heard, we've heard that it is God's word that actually makes that water, gives that water its uh, authority, right? Of course, all waters are under God's authority in a general sense, right? To cause rain to fall and uh, rivers to run, that sort of idea. But specific authority to deliver God's people, uh, that requires a particular gospel word of God. Right? Well, the same sort of thing today. Um, well, tomorrow's Old Testament reading, but we're going to look at it today. This is from Exodus 17, and uh, there's actually an al- alternative reading uh, for what is called Septuagesima. I suppose now's the time for me to explain the Gesima tide. Um, it's a time of year that falls between the end of Epiphany and the beginning of Lent. Um, it's a historic season. I don't know. I didn't uh, look up its observance, but it's probably 1,300, 1,400 years of observance. Um, only recently, since the uh, late 50s, early 60s, have our church, have many of our churches abandoned um, this short season of three Sundays. There's a way that it uh, benefits us as Lutherans in particular, because you can, I think, without too much effort, bring it into conformity with three the three solas of the Reformation, sola gratia, sola um, fide, and sola scriptura, right? So uh, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. So you'll, you'll find some correspondence there. This week would be grace alone Sunday, Septuagesma. Uh, Septua is just, sept is the prefix for seven. Septua is 70, gesimas are weeks. So um, this is 70 weeks or seven, I think referring to the 70 years of uh, exile in Babylon. So we get, with Lent, we have obviously the 40 days, um, but with the gesmatide added on, we also have the exile in Babylon. And both are pictures of uh, what happens when we reject God's word and are put into um, uh, under, well, the authority of, of tyrants and uh, enslavers. Um, and the reason God does that is for repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? uh, which he does. 400 years in Egypt, it begins actually delivering them um, from um, you know, the poverty of, the, of, a, uh, of a famine, but it results in, in ultimately slavery. They never go back, um, not until the Lord himself delivers them back to the land Right? It's interesting, you end up in a foreign land and then eventually it just becomes your homeland and you forget about the land that God had promised you. All right, So there's that aspect as well. Uh, let's see, alternate reading. Let's see if it's given to me anywhere. No, the classic reading is Exodus 17, uh, but I think the other reading was Exodus... I'm going to say Exodus 24. Let me go look here. Uh, da, 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 da. Propers for Septuagesma. Oh no, no, there's no alternative. That's it, Exodus 17. It was last week that had an alternative. Okay, um, and so what we want to look at here is um, 
well, how does it, how might this intersect with the gospel text for tomorrow? Or maybe, and I would suggest this is true, the Old Testament text is really trying to explicate um, something from the epistle and to bring an expansion to the epistle more so than to the gospel. The gospel, the epistle actually is kind of the bridging text between the Old Testament and the gospel reading. All right, so we'll see how that works out. Uh, and anyway, the Old Testament text is not historic. Uh, that's only been uh, recently appointed uh, in that same time period, the last 50 years. So our churches did not hear the Old Testament as part of divine service. That was part of uh, Matins or Vespers. In any case, here we go. Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And Moses, excuse me, and the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out, will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Right. I think there's something, something uh, resonant here in this story of God's people and um, his leader, maybe in particular for pastors, as they often are given to hear the complaints of God's people, which are not usually against them. And even if they are against the pastor, they're actually against the Lord and what the Lord has given us to do. Why do we need to receive the sacrament every Sunday? Why? <laughs> why? Why does it take so long to hear God's word? Why can't you... Um, do, you know, talk about things other than God's word, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. Um, in this case, God is delivering his people out of exile into the promised land, and yet they doubt that he's going to provide for them. Um, notice that their contention, Moses is rightly correcting them here, their contention is not with Moses, but it's ultimately with the Lord. But Moses becomes this um, hmm, token or, um, yeah, that's probably a good word, or totem even would be a good word for God. You see that with the golden calf incident where they uh, they build a calf to take the place of Moses when Moses is absent and that doesn't seem to be returning. Um, so this is, they can, they can then, um, what, meet out all of their both hopes and desires, but also their violence and hatred of God. They can put it onto this totem, not on God himself. <laughs> so Moses has to bear the brunt of all of that. Uh, of course, Moses then functions in a way as an intercessor speaking on behalf of God to the people. Now, God does hear their complaint. And the key here, I think, connection to this Sunday is that is that um, doctrine of grace. God is gracious and merciful, long-suffering, patient, and kind, that he's gracious, that he, <clears throat> he gives his good gifts to those who don't even deserve them. And that's what it means, that God is gracious. And here, um, he, there's no reason why these people deserve uh, to receive water. You know, certainly as being complainers, you would think, well, I'm just not going to give them what they ask for. And at times, God even says, I'll just let them die. But Moses rightly corrects God. And I think God always has in his mind that he's preserving these people for the sake of his promises to them. Right? And so that's certainly how we are to understand it. God is gracious to us because he's promised to be gracious to us and ultimately to save us in Christ Jesus. Um, Luther uses this, this story, this text, um, 
in teaching about the Lord's Supper, which is interesting, right? Because you would think, well, water, it clearly connects us then to baptism and a word of promise attached to baptism, right? Um, This is in a work from 1523, which is right after um, he wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church, which was talking about um, all of the false doctrine that was being taught by the taught by the Roman Church. This is after his excommunication, of course. All right, and um, is it after his excommunication? Well, that's a question. I think I think the papal bull had already been issued at that point, and so he writes a letter um, to a group of people. I'm looking it up here: the Bohemian Brethren, whom uh, Luther commonly called the um, Waldenses, 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 or the Picards, like Jean Luc Picard. Um, they they had published their own catechism, and he had come to know them from that, uh, from uh, in Bohemian or Latin, from 1520 and then 1523. Um, Luther was not pleased with some of the things he found in their catechism because they seemed to point in the direction of the radical views which with, with which he had now begun to contend at home, says the editor here. This was true, especially of the implications of the catechism concerning the presence of Christ's body in the Lord's Supper specifically the adoration of the sacrament. The German editions of this of the catechism, their catechism, dealt in different ways with this matter of adoring the sacrament. Some favored it as Luther did, some rejected it as did the brethren, and some ignored it. This irritated Luther and led him to seek more uh, definite information about the position of the brethren on the matter. All right, so um, there's all sorts of cor- correspondence back and forth. Luther's student Paul Sparatus writes back and forth, right? They're trying to figure out what's going on there. There's an official delegation that goes to the Bohemian brethren, um, trying to distinguish between the Bohemians and people like the radical Anabaptists, like Carl uh, Schlatter's Zwingli, right? Um, and so there are, there's all this correspondence, and ultimately Luther uh, writes this treatise um, in response to them. All right, so Luther's already excommunicated. This is just dealing with other people of, we'll say, Reformation-minded, all right? Um, so I'm just going to read the introduction, and then I'm going to jump to where he refers to Exodus 17, all right? To my dear sirs and friends, the brethren who are called Walden Siens in Bohemian and Moravia. Oh, these are the Moravian brethren. You've probably heard of them. Grace and peace in Christ. There has come from your midst a little book in German, German and Bohemian, quote, Christian instruction for young children, in which other things it is stated that the sacrament, in the sacrament, Christ is not present substantially and naturally, and that he is not there to be adored. This is a matter of real concern for us Germans. All right, so he gets, <laughs> as Luther often does, um, he goes right after the issue at hand, which is, well, I don't have time for um, fluffy language. I'm just going to tell you what's going on here. Let's see. Adore is to venerate um, or to worship, to speak or pray. Yeah, worship is probably the right word for us. All right. Um, and so you think about all the reverent things that we do with the Lord's Supper. We kneel to receive it. Um, we bow at the words of institution, that sort of thing. All right. And that's what Luther's talking about. And of course, we do that because we believe that Christ is truly present in his supper. All right. So to the first point, he says, everything depends on um, the verba, the words, namely, um, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, and take, drink, uh, drink of it, all of you. This is the cup of the New Testament of my blood, right? Because they are the words of life and salvation, so that whoever believes in them and has all his sins forgiven through that faith, he is a child of life and has overcome death and hell. Language cannot express how great and mighty these words are, for they are the sum and substance of the whole gospel. All right? So that's a great quote uh, to pay attention to. All right, let me get to, to go a few pages in advance here. Yeah, here we go. So he's going to respond to all the various um, arguments um, here. So we want to talk about Christ as the rock, right? The spiritual rock. All right. Oh, first, let me give you this little statement, because I think this will help get us into it. Let go of reason and intellect. For they strive in vain to understand how flesh and blood can be present. 
And because they do not grasp it, they refuse to believe it. Instead, lay hold on the word which Christ speaks. Take, this is my body, this is my blood. One must not do such violence to the words of God as to give to any word a meaning other than its natural one. This is what what was done, what is done by those who without any basis in scripture take the word is and forcibly twist it to mean the same as the word signifies. They sneer at Christ's statement, this is my body, and say it is the equivalent to this signifies my body and so forth. But we should and will simply stick to the words of Christ. He will not deceive us and repel this error with no other sword than the fact that Christ does not say, this signifies my body, but this is my body. All right? So that's the, that's the key argument. All right, but they may quote the passage in 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> All right, here. All drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Um, and they may argue, Paul here says that Christ was the rock, even though it is clear that Moses struck a physical rock from which they drank. All right, so there's our Old Testament text. So he's got both the epistle and the Old Testament together here. So they argue, well, yeah, well clearly... Moses struck a real rock, and so it must signify something, right? So the rock signifies Christ because Christ cannot be a natural rock. It can all can be said here then that the bread signifies my body, where the text says this is my body. See how they're doing? If they argue in that way, one should answer that their reasoning contains two great fallacies. Right? So this might be helpful for you. People talk about Christ truly being present in the sacrament. The first is that what they attribute to the statement in St. Paul is not true that the rock signifies Christ. (laughs) St. Paul does not say that the rock which Moses struck is Christ. His words say very plainly, they ate of the same spiritual food which we eat, and they drank the same spiritual drink of which we drink, and so forth. Now, we certainly do not eat the physical bread from heaven, nor do we drink of the natural rock which the Jews ate and drank in the wilderness. You see, so he doesn't say is. Paul doesn't say is, so it's a false equivalency. Hmm. On the contrary, it is the spiritual bread from heaven and the spiritual rock which are identical for both of them and us. Paul makes this clear himself later when he says, they drank the same spiritual rock which followed them, which rock was Christ. As much as to say, right, now here's how Luther understands verses 4 and 5 before you. I am not speaking of the physical rock, but of the spiritual rock who had yet to come, and by this expression I mean Christ. He is the true rock of whom they have eaten as well as we, because they have believed in him as we have. So you see, they have been wrong in citing Paul's statement on behalf of their error. For it is true that St. Paul says Christ was the rock. He does not say that Christ is signified by, but that Christ himself actually is the spiritual rock, the one signified by that physical rock. So Christ is the spiritual rock. The physical rock which Moses struck is the thing that signifies. Does that make sense? This is why Paul was careful to add the word spiritual to the word rock, so that no one would ever construe it to mean the physical rock. Moreover, he says it was a rock which was yet to come, from which they drank spiritually. This too cannot be construed to mean the rock in the wilderness. Still, it does not help that St. Paul speaks so clearly and specifically about the spiritual rock. That is the rock of which the Lord says in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church. Now certainly the Christian church cannot be built on a physical rock, but upon Christ himself through the gospel. There it again, or it prevail again against all the gates and powers of hell. Now, the second fallacy in their reasoning is this. Even if they had demonstrated that in the passage of St. Paul or anywhere else, the word is means the same as signifies, which they nevertheless cannot do, they still would not have proved anything. For if one does, does find that a word has a particular meaning in one passage, that is no reason arbitrarily to impose the same meaning on the word in all other passages. For example, the fact that Christ in Matthew 16 calls himself a rock would be no warrant for me every time that I find a rock in the scriptures to make Christ out of it. (laughs) 
All right. Um, there may be a pattern there, but that doesn't mean that Christ is every rock we find in the Old Testament or the scriptures. That's Luther's point. Again, it is not proper merely because Moses struck a rock in the wilderness for me to make a physical rock out of, uh, out of the rock in Matthew 16. How should one proceed? One should proceed thus. Every single word should be permitted to stand in its natural meaning. No deviation should be allowed unless faith compels it. Thus, the word rock in Matthew 16, um, I ought to let stand in its natural meaning, that it denotes a physical rock. But faith would not permit that. It forces me away from such a natural meaning and compels me to understand a spiritual rock. On this rock, I build my church. That statement. For faith will not permit me to build Christendom upon a physical rock. (laughs) Therefore, when I say in this passage, Christ is the rock, the word is cannot mean the same as Christ is signified by the rock. It must mean that he himself actually is the rock, just not a physical one, right? Furthermore, when I refer to Moses, Moses' rock in the wilderness, and say Christ is the physical rock in the wilderness, here faith compels me to understand the, the word is as signifies, so that it means Christ is signified by the physical rock in Moses, of Moses. For faith does not permit us to hold that Christ, who is a person, is natural stone. Yeah, this is all this conversation about physical and spiritual. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the radical Anabaptists are picking up, uh, the Moravian brethren here are picking up on the same arguments that that will come into full force in the Enlightenment, which is this radical divorcing of physical and spiritual, not making a distinction. Which that's that's good to make the distinction between physical and spiritual, which Luther's doing here, but to tear them apart so that a physical thing cannot signify a spiritual thing, right? Um, and we've seen this right when we've talked about whether it be the flood or the crossing of the Red Sea or um, the crossing of the River Jordan or the healing of Naaman. How could those stories? How could f- uh, and then ultimately, I suppose we could get to like Nicodemus, right? How could baptism, which is to wash with physical water, s- signify a greater reality of being washed in Christ's blood, to being uh, clothed in Christ, to being drowned in uh, the old Adam being drowned and died, right? How how could those two things both be true? And they're both true. We don't baptize without water. We baptize with water because that's what, it, what Christ commands. But it is the water that signifies something greater. You see, and the two are so intimately connected that then every time we bump into water, we ask the question, is this baptism, right? Not necessarily. Does it teach us something of baptism though? Maybe. Um, another place where this will spin out is in John chapter six. Um, and I, Luther goes there in this work too, on the adoration of the sacrament, where Christ speaks of whoever, um, uh, in order to be saved, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And it's right after the feeding of the 5,000. So then some would say, well, the feeding of the 5,000 signifies a, a spiritual eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood. You're like, well, no, it was a physical eating, but it, Jesus didn't attach to that physical eating, the feeding of the 5,000, um, the words of promise, namely, this is my body and this is my blood. That doesn't mean that the feeding of the 5,000 can't teach us something about the Lord's Supper, but it doesn't institute it, um, but rather, you might think of it this way, every, every banquet meal leading up to the institution of the Lord's Supper teaches us something about it. So it, even like the 70 elders um, dining with God upon the mountain of Sinai, right, under cloud and, and fire. Well, that too can teach us something of the sacrament, even though it is not the sacrament itself. Right? So there's spiritual eating and physical eating and these two things being intimately bound. Um, I think this is actually a helpful conversation and it's a very hard one to have because we're so wired against it. But that um, you can't be spiritual you can't call yourself a Christian and, be, and say that you're spiritual and not actually be a part of the body, the physical body of Christ, which is which is the, the gathering of the Christian congregation around Jesus and his word. Now, I know that that seems too harsh, right? 
but it's the same way that Jesus says you want forgiveness, you need to hear it in your ears personally, right? And you need to receive it in your mouth and you need to have it washed on you. That there is no uh, grand divorce of physical and spiritual and that Christians have fallen into this idea that there's a spirit, a higher spiritual reality and that the physical is somehow immaterial um, to that spiritual reality. It's a problem, right? And we're going to talk more about that in a minute, hopefully. Now, let me finish out what just this section here from the Adoration of the Sacrament, which is a great work, by the way, and probably worth a lot of meditation. Um, <clears throat> let me skip ahead here. Likewise, with reference to the sacrament, so now the Lord's Supper. If they want to say that the bread is not Christ's body, but merely signifies it, they should indicate wherein it is contrary to faith for the bread to be the body of Christ and the wine to be his blood. Right? So it can't, how can, why would is not mean is according to faith? Hmm, that's an interesting tactic, right? For we also find the same kind of twofold existence in the world of nature. We say properly concerning a red hot iron, the iron is fire and the fire is iron. We do not say the fire signifies iron and that the iron signifies fire. In the same way, we say also concerning Christ, the man is God and God is the man, and not God signifies the man or the man signifies God. Since therefore faith permits it and nowhere contradicts it that the bread is the body of Christ, one should let, go, let the words is stand in its own natural meaning, and under no circumstances retreat from that position, but hold fast to God's word that the bread truly is the body of Christ. All right, and then he goes on to talk about um, the two kinds of body, physical body and spiritual body, all right? And that's another error where they fall into. Um, now, those who say that the bread and the wine signify Christ's body and bloody, body and blood, they don't get there by faith, they get there by reason. I think that's an important note to make um, because they, they believe it um, empirically to be impossible for bread and wine to be body and blood of Christ and that we receive it, receive that his true body and blood in our mouths and yet it is also um, received spiritually, right, in faith. Um, that contradicts reason, not faith. <laughs> and so that's that's where signified actually comes from. It's a contradiction of reason. And again, reason founded upon those enlightenment ideas that the physical and the spiritual are as far from each other as possible, right? which is not true, according to God's word. Uh, and so then, yeah, you could read on about that. Uh, it looks like we already actually got into the epistle, um, but I want to actually deal with the first part of the epistle, and I think you'll see a connection here, especially with that comment about physical and spiritual. So 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the, the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I don't uh, want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ, was, past tense. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All right. Now, here's a super contradiction, uh, a contra, what? What's the word I'm looking for? Like contradictory, controversial section <laughs> about putting the body into subjection, right? Um, and competing for the prize, being temperate in all things. Um, here you might hear that word of the temperance movement, right? Um, you know, to, uh, to not overindulge, right? So all over the scriptures, we have commands against um, drunkenness and gluttony and uh, licentious behavior and falling um, 
prey to our lusts and our cravings, right? And these are all physical things. And the problem is, is that the Bible says, yes, they're physical, but they affect your spiritual well-being. Like, oh my. Now pastors getting into troubles because the health and wellness movement <laughs> in particular, you know, you're talking about diet, exercise, um, those folks, um, they are pseudo-spiritual, um, but not for the sake of faith in Christ. So I, uh, I'll just speak here as a preacher because that's what Paul's doing in particular is he's saying that um, if he is not physically well, he will be in, unable to preach. And if he preaches that that one should um, discipline the body for the sake of faith, right? And here he's referring to things like fasting, um, I think uh, bodily exercise, working hard, right, with your body, um, to do so that um, if, he's, if he preached against them, but he himself was a glutton and um, an imbiber and, you know, binge drinker, right? If he himself abused his body, then his preaching would be um, hypocritical, right? Um, now, there are those who have taken this, I think, maybe a bit too far <laughs> or way too far, uh, but this this is probably one of the chief texts that's contributed to, um, well, like the uh, creation of the uh, the YMCA would be a good example of that, um, that, that the body that is not um, in subjection, uh, you know, disciplined, will also have an undisciplined mind and with an undisciplined mind, then also an undisciplined spirit. But these things are not so easily um, separated. And uh, wow, what a controversial topic. Uh, how dare pastor tell me how to live my life <laughs> physically, right? And you say, well, no. Um, if if you live in such a way that you can't attend to divine service because you're um, hung over on Sunday morning, well, you see how your physical behavior has affected your spiritual well-being because now you're not hearing God's word and you're not gathering with the fellow saints around Christ's body and blood. You see? Now, that's that's a pretty obvious example, I hope, but uh, it won't, you know, that, that doesn't stop people from complaining about it. Um, this happened then with the, with the reformers because in the Augsburg Confession, Article 26, they spoke against the command from the papacy uh, to observe certain days for fasting. So under obligation um, from church leadership, one was who, who would call themselves a Christian was committed or, or um, placed under a rule that they must fast on Wednesday and Fridays, for example. No red meat on Fridays. You've heard that before. All right. And so then we were accused by saying there is no command from God. You're free to do that if that's how what you need to discipline your body to remain attentive to Jesus and his word and faithful in your vocations, able to serve your neighbor. Um, well, then fair, fine. But you, we can't do it under obligation. So Lutherans, even when they said, we as a community w- would um, suggest um, days of fasting during Lent, for example, of Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, we also provided exclusion for children and pregnant women because there's no command from God. So why would we burden them um, who, for their own w- well-being, uh, need to eat you know, more than, than others? All right. Um, and so then by the time of the apology to the Augsburg Confession, um, this has become quite controversial, maybe even amongst Lutherans, but especially between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics. And so i uh, just read one little section here of the response that, then to Rome, which again is part of our Lutheran uh, Confession here. Our adversaries object by accusing our teachers of being against discipline and the subduing of the flesh, right? Thereby contradicting St. Paul right here. Uh, just the opposite is true, as can be learned from our teachers' writings. They have always, our teachers, have always taught that Christians are to bear the cross by enduring afflictions. This is genuine and sincere subduing of the flesh, to be crucified with Christ through various afflictions. Furthermore, they teach that every Christian ought to train and subdue himself with bodily restraints or bodily exercises and labors. So our, our teachers taught, teach this. <laughs> um, 
So, I mean, it wouldn't be wrong to have, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, jujitsu Thursdays or something, right? And we, we all uh, do some physical, or, or, or just calisthenics or whatever it is, right? To have um, a group of people within the congregation gather here um, for their physical well-being, right? That wouldn't be wrong. Uh, certainly is in keeping with both Paul and our confession. Then neither overindulgence nor laziness may tempt him to sin. So that's the key. Overindulgence or laziness because that will get in the way of then God's word. But they do not teach that we may merit grace or make satisfaction for sins by such exercises. All right, so we don't get God's good favor by our labors, nor do we, um, do we get forgiveness of sins by our work. Such outward discipline ought to be taught at all times, not only on a few set days. Christ commands, watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Also, Matthew 17, 21, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Paul also says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. There we go. Here he clearly shows that he was keeping his body under control, not to merit forgiveness of sins but that by that discipline, but to keep his body in subjection and prepared for spiritual things, for the carrying out of, his, of the duties of his calling. Therefore, we do not condemn fasting in itself, but the traditions that require certain days and certain meats with peril of conscience, as though such works were necessary service. Nevertheless, we keep many traditions that are leading to good order in the church, such as the order of scripture lessons in the mass and chief holy days. At the same time, we warn people that such observances do not justify us before God, and that it is not sinful if we omit such things without causing offense. The fathers knew of such freedom in human ceremonies. In the East, they keep Easter at another time than at Rome. When the Romans accused the Eastern Church of schism, they were told by others that such practices do not need to be the same everywhere. Right? So that's always the caution. I used, uh, let's see, Vicky says, I used to teach a class at our old church called Body and Soul. I taught 45 minutes of Pilates. And then pastor came in and did a 45-minute Bible study. Wait a minute. The pastor didn't do the Pilates? Mm. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> well, there's the idea. Um, I would suggest, well, I'll just tell you my own personal experience. Um, everything in the church is more difficult for me um, during the fall um, through the early spring because um, my my typical morning routine that I can do throughout um, the spring into the early fall um, is before I do any other work. Um, well, I have a cup of coffee, of course, um, but then um, I actually go for a bike ride and it changes, it changes my mind. It, there's no other way to describe it. Like I think more clearly um, I'm more prepared for the day, right? By that, by that physical discipline. Um, and I just don't have it in the winter, uh, mostly because of the school starts at some ungodly hour. Like the people are here at seven o'clock in the morning. Like, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> And I would have to get up um, even earlier than to try to accommodate that, um, which, you know, getting up before daybreak, I don't think is not actually probably all that helpful. Uh, maybe at daybreak, but in any case, that's a whole nother topic for another time. So, um, so, but I think we can see in both, well, certainly in the Old Testament reading that the uh, physical, the physical needs of the body can become a spiritual affliction. And our work, we can turn into a meritorious thing. Both of those aspects are going to be present in tomorrow's gospel text. Um, namely, that we think our work merits a certain pay from God. No, right? Um, actually, our work is just a free gift to us that we can uh, engage in with a free conscience and not worried about doing too little or too much, um, but rather serving as God gives us to serve at one another in love. All right, so that's one. That's a significant point for tomorrow. Um, but the other aspect, too, is that God does give us um, to, to work. Pilates are much harder for men, and the class was all women. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> so the problem, though, is that, I mean, apart from the health and wellness people, 
um, we're generally taught to live undisciplined lives. And part of that discipline is a spiritual discipline. So being attentive to God's word, to pray each day, to pray before meals, um, to join with the fellow Christians weekly in divine service and not not let other things get in the way of that. Um, that's a spiritual discipline. Um, but you notice that what gets in the way of attending to God's word physically and spiritually together and in, in gathering together with the fellow saints, it's almost always physical needs, right? So we're talking about work, we're talking about um, uh, travel, we're talking about leisure, we're talking about um, rest, right? Um, even sometimes sickness. Um, sickness not necessarily just caused um, through age or um, well, just coincidence or seasonal, but rather sickness caused by um, physical neglect, you know, the way that we ne- neglect our body, right? Now, that, that's unfortunate because then it gets in our way to, of in our ability of hearing God's word. And I, that's what Paul's getting after here. It's not a popular topic, but to try to divorce the person, spiritual and physical, that's how we end up in this situation where people prioritize physical over spiritual because they don't see the same, like you want healing for your body, then you need the spiritual gift of Christ's body and blood, which is also a physical gift, right? And it brings healing, for example. It's not superstitious. It's not pious mumbo jumbo. It's it's true that the sick need um, to be with, with the saints, right? Um, and so, uh, by the way, I, I could always use some help on this. There's it's a difficult um, it's difficult to find uh, for me the the needed the time that I would actually like to spend just in visitation um, and so fellow saints can can join in that and to share a devotion with uh, with the homebound or with those who are sick and, and hospitalized come alongside the pastor and assist him in that work which is the picture that's given in the New Testament with the role of the deacons for example all right so that the pastor can inf- um, give his focus to preaching and teaching um, and then um, have assistance alongside that and um, visiting the poor, the sick, and the needy. All right. So uh, hopefully that's not too controversial, but again, physical and spiritual. I like I like the way you put it. Um, this is something the Eastern Church actually does a better job on, I think, in that they, they are dependent upon Greek philosophy, um, which we can be critical of, I think, in, in some regards. But in regards to seeing um, body and soul and spirit all as one person, and that what we do in the body affects what we believe, and what we believe affects what we do in the body. Um, they're, they're actually pretty strong on that topic. Um, there's some things, there are issues there, but we'll leave it at that. All right, good. Hopefully that's helpful for tomorrow. I mean, there's much more that could be said. You could read about um, other other aspects about human traditions. Um, this, I, this topic comes up again in regards to um, the third use of God's law. All right, so in any case, that's good for now. So let's uh, sing our hymn for the week one more time from God the Father, Virgin Born. Beginning 
that's what we had assigned uh, for this week. But uh, how about I also share with you just a little bit of background of the hymn, as you had the joy of singing it. From God the Father, Virgin Born, is an anonymous Latin office hymn for the Feast of Epiphany, found in a number of 11th century manuscripts. So you see down in the credits, maybe it's too small for you, but 5th to 10th century. Its origin is unknown. In its Latin form, it is an alphabetical hymn, with the first words of each of the second line through the last line beginning with a successful letter of the Latin alphabet. Huh, makes it easy to remember. Ad baptisma cunctos de excepit, excuse me, excepit facturum gaudia hoc in labora claramque lumen mane noctum omne piam came redere scepturum tuo vita Christe ium zelum. Huh. English translation by John Mason Neal was published in 1875. So we don't actually know anything more than that. Thanks, Art Just, who wrote that. Uh, let's see. How about the tune? How about the tune? Uh, also, where's the tune? There it is. Probably from the first line of the hymn associated with the sex in the 1753 uh, Grenoble antiphoner. Um, so place France, France, Gallican, non, or excuse me, Neo-Gallican chant. So it's a, it's not Gregorian, it's Gallican chant in the tune. We don't actually know where it came from either. Huh. All right. Well, thanks. But it was associated with this hymn, um, and Janet Muth arranged it for us for Lutheran Service Book. Oh, there you go. Somebody who I've made acquaintance with, too. All right. Uh, we do have a commemoration this day. Lots going on. All right. Today would be uh, the day that we remember St. John Chrysostom, preacher. St. John was born in Antioch sometime before AD 350 and was instructed in the faith by um, his godly mother, Anthusa. After being ordained a presbyter of the church, he became famous for his sermons in his hometown. He preached with power from the Holy Spirit and had the gift of expressing the truth of God with both beauty and straightforwardness. He tended to preach without allegorical elaboration. His famous preaching resulted in in him being elected bishop of Constantinople in the fall of 397 where he continued to speak the word of God with such sweetness that he won the name Chrysostom, or Golden Mouth. To this day, many of his sermons provide valuable insight into the Bible. Luther frequently cited him. One of the themes that John never tired of hammering home from Scripture was the privilege of loving the poor and providing their needs, constantly warning against the snare of riches. As a faithful teacher of the church, John preached the free salvation of Christ. Quote, God was about to punish him, but he did not do it. They were about to perish, but in their stead he gave his own son and sent us as heralds to proclaim the cross. His confidence in Scripture's truth shines in Sermon 33 on Acts. Quote, no doubt this is in our favor, for if we told you to be persuaded by arguments, you might be perplexed. But if we bid you to believe the Scriptures, and these are simple and true, the decision is easy for you. If, you, if any agree with the Scriptures, he is a Christian. I can see that theme echoed in what we read from Luther on the adoration of the sacrament. John was not only an extraordinary preacher, but also a gifted liturgist. The most common liturgy used to this day among Eastern Rite Christians is the divine service that he is said to have authored. The preface in that liturgy shows the golden mouth at his very best. Quote, you brought us into, be- into being out of nothingness, and when we have fallen, you raised us up again. You did not cease to do everything until you have brought us into heaven and given us your kingdom, which is to come. For all these things, we thank you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. John's determination to reform the church and the Byzantine court ran into no little opposition with the governing authorities. Finally, his preaching against the erection of a silver statue of the Empress Eudoxia resulted in his exile. He died in that exile at the town of Comana in September 14th, 407. 
His final words reportedly were, Glory to God for all things. Look at that. On January 27th, 438, his bones were finally brought back to Constantinople, where he had served as bishop years earlier. We pray. O God, you gave your servant, John Chrysostom, grace to proclaim the gospel with eloquence and power. As bishop of the great congregations of Antioch and Constantinople, he fearlessly bore reproach for the honor of your name. Mercifully grant to all bishops and pastors such excellence in preaching and fidelity in ministering your word, that your people may or shall be partakers of the divine nature, through Jesus Christ, your Lord, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray the collect for this week. O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirm the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah, and the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory, and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray for the households of our church, especially especially David and Sherry, Ryan and Cassidy, Jared and Michelle, Jackie, Jeff and Julie, Dolores. And we continue to pray for our Lutheran schools this Lutheran Schools Week. Also, we continue to thank God for the gift of healing for Wendell. Pray for our catechumens. Pray for all those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Ralph, Allison, Joe, Dennis, Len, Christopher, Brad, and Ron, Carol, Mike, Doug, and Donna, Sandy, Owen, Vicki, BJ, Merlin, uh, Jolene, who was at our staff party last night, is doing quite well, and our president, our district president, John Willie. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Uh, we pray for our homebound, Marcy, Dan, Lenore, Joan, Paul, Dolores, Merlin, and Pauline. We pray for the deaf ministry of the South Wisconsin District. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That's our congregation of prayer for today, uh, Saturday, January 27th, 2024. It's good to have you with us here. Hopefully that is helpful uh, to prepare you for tomorrow and to think about the work that the Lord has set before you. Uh, the chief work of that, working within his kingdom, is actually to be attentive to his word, to, to reap the fruits of faith um, as he preaches to you, feeds you and nourishes you um, from his holy vine and uh, gives you then um, to bear fruit in love, faith in love. Right. So that's uh, the theme for tomorrow. So you'll see that tomorrow. And uh, join us at 815 if you can uh, for Bible class. Maybe we'll move Bible class after church again at some point. I don't know. Uh, maybe if, if and only so that pastor can be attentive to um, the needs of his body, discipline his body uh, before divine service so that uh, he'd be a little bit sharper. Hmm? <laughs> anyway, uh, with that, uh, it's just because there's not any daylight in the winter. That's you know, The daylight is so late. Um, I can't ride my bike in the dark. Um, not safely. So there you go. So God be with you all, keep you safe, and we'll see you uh, in the morning.
We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.